So this morning we continue a new series in the book of 1 Peter, a series we began last week with an introduction to Peter as a disciple, as an apostle who was close to the Lord Jesus, and also Peter as one who was very familiar with flaws and with failure. And then um, we also heard last week about the people to whom Peter was writing, that they were a people that Peter was calling to be prepared to suffer, to suffer for the sake of Jesus, to suffer as Christians who were unique worshipers in God's world. And now this morning, what we're going to do is circle back and reread what we heard last week plus a few more verses because these verses are so packed with content. And, and let me tell you, I've I prayed for you a lot this week. And I've prayed for these words that, that I'm going to speak. Because they are so substantial. These are very substantial words given to us in Scripture. And, and perhaps some of you are already very familiar with these words. And you just can't wait to see Pastor Paul step in it and get in trouble this morning. Right? Uh, others of you, you may be about to hear some things you've never heard before. Our view of Scripture at GPC is that it is God's holy and divine Word. And everything there is what God intends for His church to have and to know. So when we come across difficult passages, we look to them. And we look to understand them by faith. And this morning is one of those passages. So now that I have your attention, let me give uh, the reading of God's Word from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, 
you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray that God would help us understand his word. Lord, for the good of your church, for the good of your people, would you open our eyes and ears and would you soften our hearts that we might see, understand, and believe the good news of your amazing grace. And Lord, would it lead us all to praise you for it as we should as it is the only fitting response for sinners like us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we heard a little bit about Peter the Apostle, and one of the descriptors of him is that he is impetuous, that he likes to, he has a tendency to blurt out and to be the first to speak and assert himself ahead of the other disciples. And interestingly, this first letter of Peter kind of has that beginning. He launches. Um, maybe you're familiar with, with icebreakers. We call them icebreakers. A way to, um, to break into a conversation or into a relationship. Just kind of nice and easy. Crack the ice and work your way in. This is no icebreaker from Peter that is gentle and calm. And I think there's a reason for that. But Peter comes out of the gate with substance. Heavy theological substance. He goes there very quickly. Listen, in our, in our culture, we're told from a young age, um, when meeting folk, when going over to dinner at someone's house, it's not polite to talk about what? Politics, religion, anything controversial or difficult. It's very interesting how Peter begins. And, and actually, if you're looking at the English version, um, verses 3 through 9 are all one run-on sentence in the Greek. These words are just flowing. This is one run-on long sentence from Peter. And I want you to sense the weight of it, the theological substance of it. And I think there's a point to be made about that, but I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. I have three points for our passage this morning, and, and I'm afraid that we'll have to circle back and revisit some of this again next week. But, but the first of the three is this. It's the old, what I call the old doctrine of our sovereign Lord and Savior. This is an old doctrine. There's nothing new to what Peter says in that run-on sentence. For you, for me, in our culture, in the Bible Belt, sounds like a lot of controversial and new information. But that's not how Peter launches. It's not controversial in the context. This was the old understanding of who the Lord was and how He worked. And that was that He was sovereign. As Lord and Savior. So what do we mean by sovereign? Kids, this would be a good thing to talk about over lunch with your parents today. Sovereign technically means unlimited power. 
unlimited power. That's how the Scriptures have always described the Lord. One example of that is in Isaiah chapter 46. The Lord says, With whom will you compare me? Or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. That's the language of Isaiah the prophet talking about the Lord. Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Old Covenant. And it is a picture of total control. From A to Z, from beginning to end, God reveals that He says of Himself, He is in charge, get this, of all things at all times. In that way, He is sovereign. He is the one true sovereign. On that subject, John Frame says this, The sovereignty of God is the fact that He is the Lord over creation. As sovereign, He exercises His rule. This rule is exercised through God's authority as King, His control over all things, and His presence with His covenantal people and throughout His creation. The divine name, Yahweh, expresses this sovereign rule over against the claims of human kings, such as Pharaoh. Because God is tri-personal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. However, His sovereign control is not impersonal or mechanical, but it is the loving and gracious oversight of the King of creation and of redemption. That, I think, captures well. God is sovereign. He's not mechanical. He's not impersonal. He is covenantal. And His purposes that He sovereignly rules have always been about His promises. From A to Z, it's God sovereignly ushering His promises into fruition. Peter describes that in his own language in these verses in the beginning of chapter 1. And I'm just going to highlight some terms and comment on these. Um, And this should spark for you a lot of question. Let me just go ahead and say that. If this is new information, oh, you might even find this disturbing. But such is the gospel, and it always has been, disturbing of men and women in a good way. So here's what Peter says. In verse 1, he says he is writing the elect. The chosen is another word we would use. And let me remind you, this is not new language. This is not a new concept. He is launching here not because it's controversial. He's not bringing new information. He's actually beginning the conversation with old and familiar categories. Old and familiar categories of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 through 9. Listen to the concept as it existed there. The Lord did not set his affection on you, Israel, and choose you, Israel, 
because you were more, norm- more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath, the promise He swore to your ancestors that He brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping His covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love Him and keep His commandments. God has always been the chooser, the architect, the engineer of salvation. It was true in the Old Testament and it's true in the New. We just heard in the scripture reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in our pastoral prayer. God chooses some. And what kind of people does he does he choose? The lowly, the weak, the insignificant, those who would never be chosen. He chooses them. Why? So that no one will boast before Him. And there you have a picture of Old Testament Israel, New Testament present-day church. We're not a significant people. We've not been shown mercy and grace because we deserved it. We are lowly, we are weak, we are insignificant. But somehow, God is the author of this amazing grace. This severe mercy. And Peter begins his letter to these churches who have been spread about to these Christians. And he reminds that of them. You are the elect of God. You are chosen by God. Now we're entering an election season politically. And there's a lot of parallels there. The the masses will choose someone. They will elect someone. And by choosing one, they are not choosing another. And here's where the doctrines of God's grace, which we wholeheartedly believe to, can be very troubling to our ears. That God would love some in a saving way and not love others the same way? Why, it begins to sound as if God's not fair. And let me remind you that the Scriptures never describe God as fair. That's an American concept. God is described as holy and just and full of compassion. That He will show mercy where He chooses to show mercy. And He will withdraw favor where He chooses to withdraw favor. I was a freshman at Clemson University. The first time anyone ever said those words to me. I was a freshman. I was in Reformed University Fellowship. I had gone off to school from a a life in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. But in my church, we'd never had a pastor. We were dependent upon pulpit supply because we were just a small country rural church. And so one week in my church, we would have a PCUSA minister fill the pulpit to preach. The next week, it was a Southern Baptist preacher. And the third week, it was a United Methodist pastor. Which means I grew up hearing all kinds of things... But, but inconsistent in its message from week to week. And so as a freshman at Clemson University, I'm sitting in a Bible study called, What is the Reformed Faith? Which is a great question. And it was then at that moment as I heard my campus minister 
teach about these doctrines of grace that I had this thought go through my mind. Oh, my word. All of my life I have heard of kids who go off to college and find themselves in a cult. And I think it just happened. But my campus minister haunted me with these words because he knew we were hearing this for the first time. He haunted me with these words. Search the Scriptures for yourself and ask yourself, who is sovereign and who does the choosing and the election in salvation and why does he do that? And I took that as a challenge. I said, I will take that challenge and I will come back and I will prove you wrong. And that began about a year-long study for me personally of, of searching the Scriptures to prove that doctrine wrong. And then I saw that the Lord chose Abraham, and the Lord chose Sarah, and the Lord chose Israel, and then the Lord chose 12 disciples by name. The Lord chose Mary. And I get to the end of it, and I thought, oh my word... Why would God ever choose me? And my eyes were open to what the Scriptures call an amazing grace. A grace that distinguishes not because of anything other than mercy. Anything other than this amazing compassion that God would choose to have. When He could show full-on wrath. To some, as we'll see, he chooses to show mercy. And at the end of our sermon, you'll see there's only one fitting response to that. Now, as Peter goes on, back into that run-on sentence, he says that those have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Another use of that word would be predetermined act of God. God the Father, he says, by the way. And now this foreknowledge for us is confusing. Now this, remember, we're, we're reading one language in Greek and it's being translated into English. And most times when we consider foreknowledge, we think of it in the terms that we're familiar with. That it is a intellectual knowledge, right? That God looked forward down the corridor of time and He knew something. And it's a mystery because He's God. And that certainly is true. But there's something richer here that I want you to see this morning. This word that Peter is using is connected to the Old Testament concept of the Hebrew word. Now, the Old Testament word is yada, and it, was, it meant to know. To know. Just like the New Testament word here is foreknowledge, to know. But let me remind you that that word in its Hebrew is a very intimate, personal, and covenantal term. Let me give you two examples. The first is Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore him a son. That word to know there is a euphemism for sexuality between a man and a woman. It is an intimate, it is a personal, it is a covenantal knowing. That's how they use the word. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, same word, where the Lord says of Israel, Only you have I known 
out of all the families of the earth. So is he talking about knowledge intellectually or is he talking about this intimate, personal, loving language? And I think that's right. I think that's precisely what it is. So as you read this and as you um, do the, the work of understanding what's given to us in Greek, spoken to us in English, but coming from original Hebrew concepts, think of it like this. To foreknow is to forelove. It's to have loved beforehand. Well, how is that possible? Well, you who are parents, and you know how it's possible. Because you go back to before your child was born. And you loved them. Before you knew what they would look like. Before you knew what their name might be. You loved them. And so it is with the Lord. He showed a love because of His promises before the people were ever come to be. And so foreknowing is foreloving. Thirdly, he says that they were chosen, according to that foreknowledge of God, to be sanctified by the Spirit, to be made holy by the Spirit. And then here it gets a little bit more challenging for us in our culture. And, and what are they set apart for? What are they sanctified for? Two things. To be obedient to Jesus and to be sprinkled by His blood. Those two things go together as Peter communicates the gospel. Obedience and blood covering. That's what these people have been set apart for. That's what they've been chosen for. And let's apply it to the church. That's what you've been set apart for. That's what you've been chosen for if your faith is in Jesus. That you would live a life in conformity to His word and His will. And that you would live with the confidence of knowing that you are blood covered by Him for all of your flaws, all of your failures, all of your shortcomings. We've been set apart for those very things. That language of blood sprinkling, if you were here for the Hebrews Bible study or Hebrews sermon, you heard a ton of this blood language, this sprinkling language. But here it harkens back to Exodus chapter 24 where Moses takes a bowl full of blood and do you remember what he does with it? He splashes it on the table, on the altar, and then he takes it and he throws it on the people. Their response in hearing the word of God was that we will obey. We will obey. And the Lord uses this imagery to prefigure, you're not going to obey and you need to be covered with blood. And you're set apart. And that is what we have here. Peter is hearkening back to that language. You are called to obey. And you're going to need to be sprinkled with blood. Because you will fall short of the glory of God. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 says the same. Speaks to the covering, the sprinkling with blood that God's people require because of their sins. And then in all of this, in verse 3, at the beginning of the run-on sentence, Peter says, Praise be to God. Blessed be God for His great mercy, for His great love. And this is where Peter continues that theme that you've heard me bring up time and time again. That great mercy word is the word eleos, which we translate as mercy, but it's the New Testament parallel word to that Old Testament word, hesed, that we've talked about so much. God's mercy, His covenantal love 
The mercy that He shows His people. Peter picks up on that Old Testament language and concept and speaks in the Greek, but brings the same context to bear. So in all this, what I'm saying is, Peter is not bringing new categories. He's reaching backwards using the same concepts, the same images, the same language. It is in no way intended to be controversial. He's not starting a fight. He's just using the context and the boundaries to encourage these suffering Christians to think the way God's people have always been told to think. That their God is sovereign, He is good, He is in control, and they are the elect of God, sprinkled about the earth here and there. And that God's Spirit will sanctify them through their suffering to the point that no matter how bad they're suffering, they are still able to greatly rejoice. That's the context. That's what Peter says. Now, secondly, he now launches into this description of what he calls a living hope. And I want to say a few things about this. A living hope. This is not a dead hope that Peter offers these people. The Scriptures say that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, right? Ephesians 2, that was our opening call to worship. But our hope is alive and well because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So we have a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's living because of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Then he says it's not a perishable hope. Our hope is not one that perishes. It is one that endures. He says our hope in Jesus will never perish. It will never spoil. It will never fade. Kids, that cannot be said about what's in your refrigerator when you go home from church. Everything has an expiration date on it, right? And it can even be a canned good. Canned goods have expiration dates. Baby seats somehow have expiration dates. Have you seen that? First time I saw that, I knew I was being ripped off. Everything in this world has expiration dates. But Peter says, not so with our salvation, not so with our inheritance. It can never perish, it can never spoil, it can never fade. It is literally incorruptible. It's the same language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about our bodies at the resurrection. That we will be raised, what? Incorruptible. That's the inheritance that Peter is encouraging these suffering Christians with. To lean into your sufferings as you think ahead to the promises that will be true for you in the Lord Jesus. It's not a dead hope. It's not a perishable hope. And it's not even a new teaching. Nothing he has said is new. Nothing he has said is new terms, new concepts, or new information. This is the old doctrine as God's people had always received it. But they had drifted from their understanding of who they were and of who God was, of what God's nature is and of what our nature is. Charles Spurgeon said this about the old doc doctrine. Now when I say that, remember, Charles Spurgeon is an English Baptist preacher called the Prince of Preachers. And it shocks people sometimes in our American culture to learn that this Baptist was 
was of the old doctrine, what was called Calvinism. You understand Calvin did not invent this. Calvin articulated it with clarity. But it was the same doctrine as, as Luther and Augustine. And prior to them, Peter and all of the authors of the New Testament and all the authors of the Old Testament. But listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. I have my own private opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and Him crucified unless we preach what is nowadays called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. I do not believe we can preach the gospel unless we preach the sovereignty of God in His dispensation of grace, nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah. Now you can't say it much more strongly than that, or more clearly than that, but I think that he's right. These doctrines of grace, of the sovereignty of God, and the sinfulness of man, that is the context by which all this is given to us. This is no new teaching. This is not novel. These are the old doctrines of Holy Scripture. And then fourthly, concerning this living hope. It's not a new teaching, but it is, he says, a new birth. Something is required here that is new. And it's a new birth that God provides for His people. This is likened to the language in John chapter 3, where Nicodemus asks the question of, how can I be born again? New birth language. And this is the language of conversion. This is the language of God and His sovereignty, doing something new in a sinful heart, changing a person, changing their character, changing their faith, changing the substance of who they are. It's called a new birth, being born again. And again, in our culture, there are all kind of hurdles that make all this hard for us. But in our culture, the language of being born again has taken on new meaning. Born again has been used to identify a voting block of conservative Republicans. You understand that's not what the Bible is talking about. To prove that point, statistics show that a third of those who claim in America to be born again have, via survey, identified that they think that Jesus has sinned and that Jesus did not rise from the dead. So our culture defines born again one way, the Scriptures a very different way. I'm all for recapturing the language of the Bible in its own explanations. And so don't be confused by the culture. But the origin has been that we must be born again. Our sinful hearts have to have transformation, life breathed into them. And that is the story of amazing grace that God's Word tells us He has done. What we heard in Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive. We were born again with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. 
And now thirdly and lastly, what is the fitting response to all of this news that Peter is repeating as he retells the story? Well, he says in verse 3, the fitting response is praise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to Him. Blessed be Him. That is the fitting response to this news. That God who is rich in mercy, bless His holy name. Another response to this good news is a determined and faithful spirit that can greatly rejoice despite suffering. Despite the miseries of this life, when one has experienced this kind of saving grace, they're able to rejoice. Even when there's a horrible diagnosis, even when there is a terrible accident, even when jobs are lost, livelihoods are at stake, when the whole world as we know it seems upside down and everything is at risk, God's people are able to look forward into time and rejoice that their promises are secure, that they were never left up to them, but always in the hands of a sovereign God. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We're told that the worst things you and I endure in this life, they are but light and momentary. How can cancer be light and momentary? How can the loss of a loved one in an accident be light and momentary? There's one way. And it's when that horror, that suffering, that hardship is compared, Paul says, to the eternal glory that far outweighs it all. That far outweighs it all. This is how Peter is teaching those who are suffering to think. That they think in terms of God's eternal promises, not the immediate circumstances and situation of a temporary life. And all that, he says, should result in doxology. That is the praise of God. In verses 8 and 9, he says... Praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Not only will God and the Lord Jesus receive praise, glory, and honor, but it also appears that he's referencing their faith. That faith that is proved genuine through trial, that faith results in praise, glory, and honor. And let me remind you, that is not because of the effort of the worshiper, the effort of the believer. It is God's grace that has given that faith that would endure through trial. That is amazing grace. Michael Scott Horton says, in summing all these kinds of truths up, he says this, Grace is the gospel. The extent to which we are unclear about who does what in salvation is the degree to which we will obscure the gospel. And what Peter is giving us this morning is that we have a God who is the author who is in ultimate control. 
And even when things from our perspective seem to be going awry, even when all hope can feel like it's lost, Peter says, remember the God who orchestrates it all for your good, for His glory, and He never fails to fulfill His promises. He always sees things through. And it's that kind of comfort that Peter gives us, whatever your suffering is, it's that kind of comfort that he speaks to us. Regardless of your suffering, you are in the hands of a good and sovereign God who has chosen you to undergo this suffering so that your faith can prove itself genuine and it will result in doxology, the praise of God for His glory and honor and goodness to His people. In Psalm 116, we're, we're given a good question that will lead us to the table this morning. And the question is, what fit return, Lord, can I make for all your gifts to me? That is to say, what is the fitting response? What is the right thing to do when you hear this good news? And the psalm writer says, there is nothing for me to do but to take the cup of salvation freely offered and to call upon the name of the Lord and to live faithfully and fulfill all the vows before His people. To let our lives honor Him as we live by faith with confidence through whatever suffering God is calling us to endure. That's what the psalm writer says in Psalm 116. Peter is doing all this, reminding them that they have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, and they need to know it. And one last word before we sing and come to the table. He tells them not only is that inheritance truly theirs, he says in verse 4, that inheritance is kept for them. An inheritance kept for them. Why? So that they can't blow it. So they can't squander it. According to one survey I saw this week, did you know that generational wealth of a family, by the second generation that receives that inheritance, 70% of it is squandered. By the third generation, 90% of the inheritance is squandered. Now that's not new news. Think of Jesus in Luke chapter 15 with the story of the prodigal son. What did he do with his inheritance? He squandered it. You see, people can never be trusted ultimately with inheritance. We'll squander it. We'll blow it. We'll ruin it. But what, what does Peter remind the people here? This inheritance, he says, verse 4, is kept in heaven for you, who by faith are shielded by God's power. So as we come to the table and as we celebrate an inheritance that has promised to God's people, we give thanks that He's the keeper of it. You would squander it, and so would I. But He's the keeper of the inheritance. And He says that by His power, He protects the faith of His people. That's a sovereign God who is saying that. I can't give you better news this morning than all of that. And it's the message of Peter. It's what the Lord gave Peter to share with God's people.
Let's close in prayer and then we're going to sing of this amazing grace of God and we're going to come to the table and remember our inheritance. Let's pray. Lord, Your grace is amazing. Your mercy is so rich and so free. And Lord, why You would love us and set us apart when we are no better and no different than any other person in the earth. Lord, Your grace and mercy are the only thing that have set us apart. Lord, would You warm our cold hearts with that truth? Would You drive us to our knees with a deeper faith and repentance? May we live with more confidence and security. And Lord, may You refresh us even in song and as we come to the table by faith. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.